Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 175. Quite a milestone, really, um, if your head works in fives and twenty-fives, which mine absolutely does. So, uh, yeah, a big a big episode today, and the guest absolutely lives up to that. Um, the, the last episode we had, 174, with Ricky Forbes. For those of you interested in meteorology and insane weather and sort of, I guess, dramatic television. Ricky is one of the presenters, or was. He's, um, he hasn't retired at all. The, the TV show finished. Presenters of the TV show Tornado Hunters out in Canada. So that was a really interesting one. Ricky was literally in the biggest ever tornado, um, four and a half kilometres across, I believe it was. Um, that's a tornado, not a hurricane. Um, so yeah, some pretty cool stories there. Some pretty, pretty gnarly stories, in fairness. But um, you can tell the first question I probably had for Ricky after tell us about tornadoes and why you're interested was how do you how did you find yourself on tv speaking about that and the way he sells the whole story is the reason i didn't even need to ask it it was quite clear the next episode <clears throat> after today is another one of our nuffield cohort which we must only have about three or four left we must be i haven't actually t written down how many ever how many we've done but we're certainly knocking there um, and that's guion parry guion's looking at the sort of disconnect between um between a, a, the sort of consumer and beef production. He's also got quite an interesting business on the go as well. Um, and I'm sure that'll be a good good chat. Guion and I, probably one of the three or four people that over the course of the, the conference, I never actually really spoke to, albeit there's only 24 of you and, and that there's still 400 other folk around you. So it's it's quite hard to get to know everyone. So it'll be quite good to sit down with Guion uh, for an hour and, and, and have a chat. But on to today's episode... Um, another Nuffield scholar. However, you're never an ex Nuffield scholar. This man is uh, is completed his Nuffield scholarship, however, um, and is now living the busy life that 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 brings that he had before anyway. And that man is Mister Nav, or sorry, Doctor Navrat Nam Parthiban, or as we're going to go with Thebe. Thebe, would you like to say hello? Hi, how are you doing, Wallace? And um, thank you for inviting me today. Um, and looking forward to chat to you today. Just before we get started with another episode of the R Two Cast. I would like to thank our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, formerly known as A-Plan Rural. Howden are heavily involved in the social media scene in the ag space with over 100,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories, as well as posting to their rural community blog with further articles about these people in the sector. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry, such as myself. So thank you to Howden Rural for that. Not at all, mate. And what I should say is you're absolutely one of the names on the list, which quite a few folk are, but you're definitely one of the names on the list that it is not just myself that's wanted you on. I've had a few people asked to have you on. So for those that have, a uh, shout out to them. Um, oh, very, very kind of everyone. Appreciate it. <laughs> you're, you're an interesting man. And I, you're, I've got a feeling you're a wee bit, um, what's the word? You're a wee bit... Uh, modest on these type of things but you absolutely are so just just for the listener steve could you give us a bit of background about yourself who are you really what's your sort of what's your background uh my background so uh yeah i'm thebe um born and bred in scotland um and so i've lived all over the uk really i've studied all over um and currently i'm a, I'm a farm vet um and that's taken me all sorts of different journeys and avenues um, and then I've got lots of different passions and uh, I'm married with three children at the moment. 
That's that's got to be one of the big ones that takes the most of your time, I assume. <laughs> it does, it does. You know what? That's the that's the thing where I'm learning most from <laughs> how to be a parent and and to run a successful household. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I know you can do all this stuff professionally, but doing that side um, of things is the big one, eh? That's it. Um, that's it. <clears throat> was 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 the sort of you've you've went into veterinary uh, theme, and that is that's definitely your career. Was that? always what you wanted to do as a kid it's quite I always quite like asking that because I've had, had a lot of vets on as you probably know and yeah. the the veterinary idea was always one I had a few things in my head that I was like that is the coolest thing I, I generally wasn't the best at school I know when I work in lecturing but it's a different site it's a different thing lecturing than actually learning for sure but um veterinary I always thought is like one of the coolest things that I think I wasn't directly interested in but I always thought it seemed like a fantastic career um, tell us about that sort of a, a young Thebe. Was that always what you wanted to do? Yeah. So, so me personally, I didn't always want to be a vet. Um, I liked animals. I really liked animals. I liked learning about nature. I loved biology at school. Um, uh, but I was I was never the cleverest person. I was always average. Um, and and um, and yes, yeah, so I loved science. And and in my family, there are there are a few doctors. Um, and so that was sort of something that people said, well, if you like science, what, what about medicine and things like that? But I never really found that connection with medicine. And um, and but I always thought, oh, you know, what? I, I like animals. I like science. But what can I do with it? Um, and I like zoology. Um, and actually, my uncle was a vet, um, but no one really talked much about that, about him being a vet. He just was a vet because it's a job uh, and in South London, East Southeast London. Um, and I think I spent a couple of days with him seeing practice just because I had nothing else to do in the summer holidays. They used to come down to London for my holidays to see my relatives. And then um, when it came to deciding, you know, actually, what do you want to do for a career? I just thought, I love animals. I love science. What could I do with that? And um, yeah. And then I thought, well, I really had fun with my uncle. Um, and actually, do you know what dragged me to go and see him was that he lived next to a McDonald's. And, you know, where I was living, we never had McDonald's ever. But when I was with him, he always gave me McDonald's for lunch. So I was like, yeah, I was begging my parents to go and spend time with him. And actually, when I left, that's the only thing I talked about with my parents was how great the McDonald's was. But actually, later on in life, I thought, thinking, well, actually, I enjoyed the experience. I loved playing with the puppies and seeing the little bit of surgery. And I thought, yeah, why not? So, yeah. So I thought, yeah, why not become a vet? Um, I wasn't clever enough to become a vet straight away. So I did a degree in zoology. Um and then and then got into veterinary. The other, after doing zoology, I thought about being a teacher and I thought, well, well you know, I mean, I, I, I want to get in the workforce, start working as a teacher. Um, but then I thought, you know, actually, will I ever regret, you know, just try to be a vet and see what happens. And if I fail, give up. But, you know, um, and then before I before I got into vet school, I did a bit of work on farms and bits and pieces just to build up my So I never really owned pets when I was a child. Um, so I got some more experience with animals and things like that. And actually, I thought, yeah, do you know what? To do this day in, day out must be really cool. So, um, yeah, so that that was my journey into veterinary. Um, so it was sort of quite later that I sort of thought, yeah, I want to do it. But then once I was done it, I just thought I need to do the things to get in there. And, and in those days, it was quite prescriptive. You know, you had to get the grades or you had to get the um, experience. And so I just went and, and, and did that. I'm I'm gonna pick up on the weirdest part of that. I'm not gonna lie. It's, it's rural Scotland you're from, yeah. Is that right? No, Edinburgh. Oh, uh, it was Edinburgh. I was like, how is Edinburgh, Edinburgh and Dundee. McDonald's, then? You must have had a McDonald's. Oh no, well we yeah, we were uh, I think I think my parents maybe just kept us away from it because uh <laughs> they Pretending knew what we were turned into. And now and I now I do a hell of a lot with McDonald's and it's completely uh, full circle. So Yeah. 
Well, that's it. I know. And here I am coming from an island in Scotland. It's actually the fact I can relate with that is so weird. Being able to go to McDonald's felt like such a big deal. I know. Yeah. I know. That's it. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> I promise this isn't sponsored by McDonald's, but <laughs> it's <was> a big <laughs> deal. Eh? Um, I know. Yeah. 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 Um, on the on the the probably bit that people are more interested in side of things on that theme, not the not the McDonald's side. Um, the the route into veterinary, as you say, is it has well. I'll tell you my opinion, and please yeah, tell me if you think you're wrong. I think I'm wrong. Sorry. I think you either get in as someone that's clever enough to get the grades. Perfect. Well done. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think they miss out on a lot of people that aren't that you know, prescriptively perfectly smart person. Yeah. And, it, you know, there's a few folk, I've had um, uh, Claire Whittle, another Nuffield scholar, who who done a similar thing. She wasn't straight in. Yeah. Uh, and I've known people, I don't know if it's a different thing up here in Scotland or what the case is, you know, doing the, the course in Scotland, I'm not fully sure, but the cost seems higher if you're not going direct as well. And that that just seems wrong to me. Um, yeah. Is that the case? Or? So you're, you're partly right and partly things have changed. So right. when I studied, when I went by vet school, you had to get three A's at A level um, or top grades at Scottish Hires or whatever you were studying to get in. Uh, and you also had to have seen, you know, 12 weeks of practice, you know, farm practice and equine and all these things to get in. So you're naturally going to get in a lot of privately educated students who have been who have been coached in the right way and get the grades. Um, a lot of rich kids, you know, and and, and so you, you just develop this this. So th that's how vet school used to be. And, and fast forward to about about eight years ago, maybe. And the vet schools realised that actually they're not appealing to a lot of people. We're, we're missing out on a lot of demographics, a lot of children, and purely because we're looking at grades, which actually isn't a great measure of, of a person's ability. You know, some people are great at doing written exams, some people aren't. And, and as a vet, Actually, the practical side is quite important. You know, when you're on farm, communication with farmers, working around big animals, things like that, thinking on your on, on your feet, you know, working with small animals and surgery. So it's not all about f passing exams. So the vet schools have changed slightly. So the first thing is widening participation, mm -hmm. actively going out and looking at areas of the country, postcodes where there's low social uh, economic, you know, um, outcomes, basically, or looking at places where schools have low resources, but students are will struggle to get those um, grades. So first thing is the universities are trying to get to them. And then it's think about how do we bring those students into vet school? So now you don't need to just get three A's. In fact, if you come from an area that's socially deprived, you know, uh, economically deprived, sorry, um, then they might ask you for two B's and a C to get into vet school. Right. Yeah. And or you come from a single parent household or you're a caregiver or something like that, they will bring your grades down. And when you get into vet school, there are bursaries now to support, you know, students who need that financial support, that other, you know, other supports as well. Um, and there are also summer schools that are free to children from underrepresented backgrounds. So again, children from certain postcodes where there's a lot of um, economic deprivation, ethnic minorities, all these other other people that are marginalised, there are things. So there are a lot more access schemes into vet school. And also there's now a pre-vet school course as well. So if you don't get your grades, you could do a year before vet school, a pre-vet. And if you do really well in that course, then you get straight into vet school. Um, so, so actually, it's really worth thinking. If you are thinking or if you've got people that you know are thinking about getting to vet school, 
but you just think, oh, you know, I don't think they are that 3A or 5A student, and but they are gifted in lots of ways. Look at the different access schemes of getting into vet school because it's not as, as black and white as it used to be. Um, but unfortunately, we still, you know, still 45% of students in vet school are privately educated when you think that in the country it's only 6% or something. So there is a, a bias, but it's slowly getting better. And, and, and they what, do see that reason for it. I would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information about our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, the new name for A-Plan Rural. Howden Rural provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates. This could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture. Be sure to check out Howden Rural today. That's, that's got to, you know, it's just a step in the right direction. It's got to be. Yeah. And what what was what was the process before then? How did it work exactly before? So you said a few. Uh, you, had, you, you, you had to get three A's to get in vet school and do your experience. You didn't get in. You could either redo your A levels or you could do another degree and then try and get in as a post grad. But if you got in as a post grad, you had to pay post grad fees, yeah. which are normally three times the amount of uh, a first degree fee. Oh, that was. Whereas actually, if you did medicine as a post grad, the NHS would pay for you, so it's free. Why do you think that is? Because veterinary medicine is, end of the day, they're all private small businesses, whereas the NHS is government funded, so the government can fund those schemes. Whereas as a vet, when you qualify, you're all employed by uh, a small business or a corporate, um, and hence why it's it hasn't got the same sort of system as as the NHS. Yeah, that does make sense to be honest. Yeah, well, I've I and I don't know how much you know about or or have an opinion on. What's your opinion on the Aberdeen Vet School? Heard much about it, or? I, I, yeah, I do, and, and actually, I have spoken to them because so so a lot of people come to me talking about diversity and inclusion and how can we start things properly from day one. So there's a new university in Lancaster that's opening at the same time as the one in Aberdeen, and what they're thinking is how do we get those diverse students from day one and attract them and keep them and. And I think that the biggest problem in veterinary is roughly the stats are one in four new graduates leaves the profession after one year. And mm-hmm. we have a huge dropout rate in veterinary medicine. Um, so we, 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 we recruit a lot of students into vet school, but we don't keep them in the profession. And, uh, and, and so the, the, one of the solutions is let's open more vet schools, which is great because we do need people but we need to keep them. We need to think about retention, not just the recruitment side of things. And I don't think we do enough with that. I think it's also important that Scotland does have another vet school. I think just Glasgow and Edinburgh, you know, the problem with old vet schools is they're very stuck in their ways. It's nice to have a new vet school that has fresh way of thinking about things and innovative things, ways of doing things. So I think that's a good thing. Um, And also the veterinary course is quite a profitable course for a university. So when university, and you'll know this better than me probably, you know, when you have... degrees some degrees are quite profitable for universities some degrees break even or lose a bit but it's important that the university can offer a range of courses and the vet degree is quite a profitable course so that's why some universities do take them on because they can add a lot of value to the bottom line and because you know you're never going to have a an an empty course (laughs) Um, why do you think and where i guess are those people leaving where um so we have, we, the, 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 
people so so there's a really romantic idea what a vet is it's, it's the same idea that both me and you saw every child sees when they pick up a storybook or they watch tv and they see these vets driving around the countryside saving animals saving dogs saving you know it's really quite romantic but the realities are and it's just like farming i suppose it's long hours there's not a lot of money in it uh it's quite isolating sometimes and you know, you, you, you've got people who always think that you're money grabbing, but actually there isn't much money in veterinary. You know, we are and we're a small business. Every every vet surgeon is, is trying to stay profitable because that's the only way that these businesses survive. There's no there's no NHS behind the things. So as a young vet, um, you know, you come out of vet school thinking I'm going to treat animals, but you take on a lot of other things. You take on the business side. You're taking on that being on your own for the first time. You could as especially farm vets, neck wine vets. You're in remote situations. Um, so mentally, it can be quite taxing. Um, emotionally, it's quite taxing, you know, um, and and I think you get disillusioned with the whole thing. And also the pathway, you know, again, a lot of vets are very high achieving. They've always been the top of their year. And you get into vet school and you get into the vet profession and suddenly you're you're average mm -hmm. or lower than average sometimes just because you know that's because th everyone's like that uh, and so and that be, could be quite a hard thing for young young vets to take so you know um you know the suicide rate is high in veterinary which is a shame uh, the highest suicide rate out of any profession in this country um so if we could try and avoid people thinking going to that stage or burning out some you know a lot of vets will be like look i'm just going to walk away from clinical practice and do something else and that's why we get a lot of attrition. And um, and I think as a profession, we haven't changed with the times as well. So again, you know, our, our profession, 80% of people qualifying are women, yet, you know, the way that we look after maternity pay and parental leave and all those things are very poorly done in our profession. So, you know, women are like, well, they'll have a career break or they'll change careers to fit in with the life, their home lifestyle, you know. Um, and so we, we don't look after women in our profession correctly, maybe. Um, and so and even even leadership positions as well. So so because of all those things, as a young vet, you can get very frustrated. You can look at your friends doing other professions and other degrees and think, do you know what? Why don't I just do that? Because life looks simpler. The, and so people leave. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned there the suicide rate. That's a, a sad one. And it's it is. Can see why with the pressures in a job like that is you probably like you mentioned you've taken this on because you love animals yeah. you're going to see the worst side of animals now mm -hmm. obviously there's the positive side of when when everything goes right but you are only going to be really seeing them when they're bad that's that's what's happening yeah which must be tough and then also you've got that weight of the animal and then also on top of that in a lot of cases, it's either an owner from a pet perspective or an owner from a business perspective. Yep. So you've got that weight as well. It must be yeah. it's it must be tough. And and here credit to all of you that do it. I really do mean that. Um, and it's a much higher percentage of women than I thought. I just kind of thought it would be roughly half and half. I hadn't really thought. Yeah, much no, about well, it yeah, exactly. So twenty years ago, mostly men. Um, right. and in, in twenty years, there's been a huge shift from men to women. But interestingly, if you look at sort of six, seven years qualified, it gets sort of 60, 50% women. You look at 10 years plus, it's mostly men. Right. So there's a real issue with 
promoting women into leadership positions and supporting them in leadership positions. And we need to do better as a profession to do that. Um, and, and, and and like you said, there's so many, there's other things like the suing culture, you know, again, it's a lot easier for vets to get sued. And, and so when, so let's say something goes wrong, owners can take vets to the disciplinary committee. And as a vet, you know, it can be quite isolating, you know, having that on the top of you, thinking that somebody thinks that you've made a huge mistake and they're going to, you know, as a, your reputation is going to go. Um, and, and that can be quite stressful too. And again, the statistics, I think, I think one in one in four vet young vets gets taken the VDS within their first year, something Honestly. like that. So it's, it's tough. Most of those claims are thrown out. Because again, the vet wasn't negligent. The vet didn't make a mistake, but it's just that process of going through that and knowing that you have to talk to somebody about about, about a case or whatever, and and it might be on your shoulders. Um, and and the support networks are getting better, and they could be better. Um, but yeah, th there is there is that, and um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm painting a very gloomy picture, and and I don't mean to be because actually that th th this is this is something that vets go through, but. Once you get the experience, and if you have a supportive network around you, actually you can thrive through all of this and actually have a great time. And I think that's the important thing about working as a vet. It's about the people you work with. And it doesn't matter how bad the owners are. And, you know, if you've got a really good supportive team around you and a, and, and a, and a boss who looks after you and will support you, actually a lot of these problems can be, can be um, sorted and, and you can actually become a, a much stronger person in the vet on the other side. And is the the vet company you work for? Is that Evidencia? Or have I got the IBC Evidencia? Yep. Right. Okay. So uh, tell us about how you got involved there, then. Okay. So um, IBC Evidencia is the biggest corporate in the UK. Um, so we and, and actually we're we're we've got um, a big section in Canada and in Europe as well. Um, so we so how I got involved? I used to work was I, the job before I joined IBC was I was in clinical practice in a farm practice, actually working for their rivals. Uh, of yeah. partners which is another big corporate and um i was in clinical practice you know dealing with sick cows and sheep and farmers and all these things um but i previously i'd been in industry i'd worked for pharmaceuticals i've worked for in academia as teaching i've done a bit of farming i've done bits and pieces um and in a, in a single practice in an area i just felt like there's so many experiences and skills that i'd gained that i hadn't had a chance to share um and then this role came up. So what they were looking for was for a vet to look after all the farm practices in the Wales and the south of England. Um, and it's a sort of a role where you can support the clinical, the business, the marketing, all sorts of different bits and pieces. Um, and you troubleshoot and things like that with all these practices, which, you know, I love, I thought was ideal for me. Um, and luckily, I'm living in an area where my mother-in-law and my parents aren't very far away. So when it comes to childcare, they can look after them. So it gives me a little bit of freedom to travel a bit more. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I got in touch, had an interview, and uh, here I am. Um, so I'm one of three vets um, who look after the different sections. And I only work with the farm side. Um, but then we've got vets on equine and small animal. Um, small animal is the biggest part of the business, probably 80% of the business. So farm and equine only make up 10% each but they are quite sizable. Um, so I look after about 16 practices across Wales in the South. And yeah, talking to young vets, talking to senior vets, going out on farm with them. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really, um, it's quite an interesting job in a way, but I feel like I'm, I'm doing the bits that I enjoy and uh, 
the bits that I'm not into, I don't enjoy. I'd have to do again. <laughs> <laughs> so your your role is more management than actual practicing. Is that right? At the moment, it is. It is. Yeah. But I'm, yeah. I I do get involved sometimes a bit of clinical and a bit of research as well. Um, but um, yeah, mostly now it's just people management and supporting clinical standards and things like that. Fantastic. And we've spoke about sort of inclusion throughout uh, you said it a few times and we had um Heidi Wilson who I'm sure you're aware of um a CrossFit vet who started up the and I can't get the exact title here but the bereaved vets society essentially is the, is the title essentially you've started up um a society as well and yep. why did you start that up and how did that come about so uh, yeah so I as a as a as a, a person of color in, in the veterinary sector, I'm one of a handful. Um, in every, you know, in my year group of 100, there were probably four people of colour in the whole group. Uh, and that was it. And and and, and in vet school, and, and only 3% of the veterinary profession, 4% of the veterinary profession are, are, are bay, black or people, um, people of colour. So it's quite really underrepresented when it becomes people of colour. But, you know, what you do, and... and Things like microaggressions and all these things you, you put up with because you want to become a vet, you know. So when I was in vet school, you put up with a lot of lot of things, but there's no one to talk to and you put up with it and you get through to become a vet. And then when you become a vet, then you realise that you need to actually work as a vet and go up the ladder as a vet. Um, and especially in rural settings, it was quite hard, um, but I did it. And and I and I because I wanted to be the, the best cattle vet in the world. That, that was my ultimate aim. I didn't care what people said to me or did to me. I wanted to be the best cattle vet in the world. And I did it and I did it and I did it. And then you know, I was I was a number of years qualified, senior vet, and a farmer did that to me, it was was quite racist to me, but my boss supported the farmer over me. Um and and I was I was horrified. Like and when I went for help, I went for help for all the different veterinary societies and organizations, nobody could help me. You know, there wasn't anything and nobody could, you know, nobody, everyone was passing off to each other and there was nobody. So anyway, I left clinical practice and I went to industry. And then after six months in industry, I just thought, this is not right. You know, what I went through was not right. And I should have had some support. And I can't believe there's nothing in the sector, whole sector, nothing to, to support me. Um, so I just thought, right, I'm going to call them all out. So I went to the organisations, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, the British Veterinary Surgeons. I said, it's all wrong. You know, I was going through issues. You should have been there to support me. You need to have protocols. And anyway, again, just no one was listening to me. No one was doing anything. So I tried to do it on my own for two years. And in 2016, I thought, and I wrote a blog, an anonymous blog, because I was scared about the repercussions, about what I'd gone through. And it and it blew up a bit. You know, people were like, whoa, this is, can't believe this happened, blah, blah. But because no one knew who it came from or anything like that, there was nothing more they could do. So in 2016, me and a colleague, and she had been going through sexism and racism and stuff like that. She'd put it on Facebook, and I read it, and I thought, and she'd studied with me, but we'd never really talked since we qualified. And it was like 10 years after we qualified. So I rang her up, and I said, look, I could just see what you've read, written about, and I've been going through this. Why don't we do something together? Because we're more senior now, and we can deal with it, but what about young vets coming through? Who have they got to talk to? What you know? How can we have a profession that doesn't support people? So we created the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society, and literally, we created a Twitter account, Facebook account, and a website, just like that on our phones, and rang each other and said, have you done it? Have you done it? And we did it. And then we started with that. And then using that as a vehicle, we felt if we went back to organisations or individuals and said, well, change needs to happen, people would listen to us more because we had a charity behind us. Um, so so we, we, so we created that. 
and we started fighting for change. And it was all about educating, celebrating, um, and and supporting black and people of color, so ethnicity, but diversity as well, because there's intersectionality as well. You know, you can be a woman and be a woman, a person of color. You can be disabled and a person of color. You know, and there's lots of intersections about that. So that was our momentum, and that's how we try to drive change. And then, and with that, you know, we've just evolved and try to grow it. Um, and, and and I started in the veterinary sector, and then I remember talking to the the CEO of the Royal Veterinary College. And I said to her, look, we can't change farmers, but we can change vets. And um, she said to me, why not? And I said, I don't know why. So I went home and I thought about it and I thought she's right. And so what I did then is from 2018 onwards, I started involved in the agriculture and farming sector as well. And it's about because as a farm vet, I'm more connected with the agriculture and farming sector than I am as a vet veterinary sector. Yeah. I deal with the far farmers on a daily basis. Our issues and anything that happens on farms happens to us. You know, you know, we talk about uh, the milk checks and we talk about the price of beef and everything like that. So I, I, I wrote to Minette Batters. I, I went to meet her at the NFU. We had a good chat about it. And, 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 and yeah, things have just rolled on since then. And so all these are different actions that I've done since has been on the back of the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society, but it em embraces you know, farming, agriculture, veterinary, and it's all about creating positive change, about celebrating change, and and, and about bringing people with us, you know what I mean? So um, sometimes there is a bit of calling out things, but a lot of it is, you know, cooperating and working together to, 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 to bring everyone to this sector, because again, that's that's what I'm passionate about. You know, I came in and I had to fight for all this, but I don't want the next generation to have to do that. And if they don't have to do that, they can spend their energy actually um, flourishing in our sector and and being the people they want to be. And actually, benefits all of us. Yeah, being the best cattle vet in the world. Uh, I'm not that yet, and I don't think I'll ever be. But it was a dream at one at one point in my life. <laughs> on on what grounds did your boss not take your side? Um. Because this, yeah, one of the one of the excuses was that this farmer was a client, and and, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, and funny enough, it wasn't even a big client. You wouldn't have even told, understood. It. The guy had left; it wouldn't have changed anything financially. But it was a rep, the, 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 it was my boss's reputation and how he was looked upon by his clients more than anything else. And for me, what I really learned about that time, what what he taught me was. Actually, it's not the technical part of the job that matters anymore, but it's about the team you work with. And actually, if you work with a really excellent team that's going to support you and platform you and lift you, then the work is always going to be good. You know, the work will be good. But if you work, if you're doing a great job, but you've got no one there to support you or anything like that, it can destroy you. And and I talked about mental health and it really was, you know, a difficult time because I was on my own at that time. Um, but yeah, as a boss, for me, it for me, uh, but then also it took him to do that for me to make this change, and in a way the sector has benefited um, because of how he treated me. But yeah, it was it's one of those things that I don't wish on anybody, <laughs> anybody. I think it speaks volumes about you as a person that you've managed to turn his actions into a positive, though. <clears throat> like you don't have to do that. <laughs> I know, I know, but I just think that um, you know. I've got the privilege and I've got the, the, the platform and I've got the experience. And if I can use that to help other people, then that's important for me. And especially people who don't have a voice, who don't have that confidence, um, you know, it, it, 
it needs somebody to start the conversation and to start the action. And, you know, and, and I'm hopefully I've started it and I'm hoping that other people take the reins and go on with it. Um, but, you know, if it helps even one person, then it's worth it, isn't it? It is, it is. And I think people like yourself who make these changes deserve so much credit. And I, I don't just say that because you're a guest on my show or whatever. I say that because I mean it. Um, I don't think I, I say stuff that. like that just to everyone anyway. So, you know, I, I generally mean it. And you you were, um, I don't know what the word is, merited in the, the fact that you were, um, are you given an OBE? How, how does that work? What's the Awarded word? an OBE. Awarded, thank you. I don't know these <laughs> Yeah, 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 I know. Often. Award is an OBE. What was that like? That's that must be the cool. So thing. actually, I haven't haven't received it yet. Okay. So I've been awarded an OBE, and actually, I'm receiving it on um, on the 13th of next month. Excellent. Um, so we're to Windsor next month. But I was given, I was awarded that for services to inclusion. Yeah. And and you know the weird thing is, so I'm not a monarchist, um, but it's it's you you do these things and you just wonder and 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 for someone to recognize that and to think that i deserve that i think for me was the most um heartwarming amazing thing the most amazing thing that's ever happened because you know i've never done this for money or for recognition or anything like that but for someone to take their time an organization to take their time to think that what i had done had been some value to our sector um for me has been the most amazing thing in my whole life um and I'm, I'm externally grateful for that um and i just hope that i can use that platform to make more change do you know what i mean um and if it does can bring if it can bring more benefit to more people then it's fully worth it um it, so, it seems no, almost it's, fit, yeah it's, it, it seems almost fitting that this comes out about three days before that <laughs> yeah wow yeah exactly yeah, oh, that's amazing or something this comes out four days um amazing does it give you a platform, Thieb? Does that what what does being an OBE mean? Like I know what it stands for, but that's about it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you doors open that wouldn't have opened before. Um, you get invited to sit at tables that you wouldn't have been allowed to sit before. Um, personally, you know, I, my parents came from colonized countries. I have issues with colonization and the empire and all those sort of things. So I do have. So I'll be honest with you, I do have, it does, it's conflicting inside sometimes on what do I do. But for me, it does give me that platform to to raise the profile of inclusion and diversity in the agricultural and farming sector. So, um, you know, and there are, there are people in our sector that are very old fashioned that really, you know, these sort of titles and things means a lot to them. And therefore, if I, and, and so the only way I'm going to be able to influence them and change them is is having those titles and that then then be it. And that's that's really what it does. But um, yeah, and, and I think even the Nuffield, you know, has given me, you know, the Nuffield as well. The reason I did Nuffield was to have that platform to raise my voice to about inc increasing diversity inclusion. So it's all these things like the OBE, the Nuffield. And, you know, I, I did things with the farmers. um club and things like that it's all about trying to find ways to create positive change and how do you get how do you get a voice because again i'm in a sector one of the most undiverse sectors in the world in the country you know um you know if, if you can't see a problem there isn't a problem um so you're trying to say but no, if you can't see it there is a problem because they're not there so i'm trying to counteract a lot of people um so i need a way that people can't go oh no we can 
ignore that person because it doesn't matter to us. Well, actually, we can't ignore him because if he's saying something like that and he's got that platform, we might need to start listening to it. And therefore, diversity, inclusion and equity is important in our sector. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. You know, from a, from a, I had a chat with with some students, you know, I've got students who are 15 um, and are coming from, you know, from and into agriculture, you know. And there's some opinions out there that a lot of fifteen-year-olds have. I don't think it's any, um, whatever the what the word is. I don't think it's any sort of reflection on them as a person. I think it's just that's the age, and we need to change that. Whether that's a school issue, a background issue, a home issue, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But we've had chats where you know I'll talk about this, <laughs> and and I want to talk about this because whether there's opinions align with mine or they literally don't have enough knowledge because they're 15 about this to really know what the crack is, all that sort of stuff. Um, And again, I'm not saying that's a reflection on them at all, that they haven't been open to a lot of diversity in this sector. Yeah. 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 Um, Whether we're talking race, uh, sexual orientation, gender, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, a thing I said to a group of students once and, and it was it was 15 and 16 year olds and two of them came back to me the next day and said, we'd never really thought of that. But what you said made a lot of sense. And the thing I'd said was something along the lines of it's not enough to not be racist, anti-LGBT, whatever. You have to be anti these issues. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it can't just be, yeah, I don't really care. But then you see someone being racist, being sexist, being whatever. And turning a blind eye. That that's not enough. Like you know, no, it's got no. we've got to call these things out. Um, we do. We do. And, and, that, and that's not just 15-year-olds, that's like a lot of people in our sector, you know what I mean? Um yeah. they're 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 just an example of a lot of people. And and you're completely right. It's not just, you know, it's almost complicity, you know, if you just say, Yeah, I don't I don't have a problem with it, or I don't I'm not racist, sexist, homophobic, <laughs> like how does that change anything? You know what I mean? We've all got an opportunity to change things and, and, and work on it. And, and I think people think that it's not about standing on a on a box and shouting, we should not be racist, we should not be homophobic. It's not about that. It's not about, um, you know, writing big articles and putting signboards up and things like that. Even around the dinner table, if you can influence the people around your dinner table, if someone comes up with a... A, a joke that's inappropriate or someone says a comment when you're at work you know and calling things out in your safe spaces that's the starting point that's the way to go about it and that's a, and if everyone did that actually so much change would happen do you know what I mean rather than anyone beating someone with a stick saying you shouldn't be doing that um so you know I completely see where you know I think what you're saying is, is so true it's just about it's about trying to make changes within your own circles or your own little spaces but what what uh, an industry that has a genuine issue with talking about these topics creates is that dinner table you're talking about where it's not a safe space for a young kid or someone to say. Yeah, you know, you're right. That's definitely a thing. And I've worked in places myself, you know, as yeah. a kid, as, as as a relatively confident late teenager, don't get me wrong, but where folk are saying stuff and you're like, no wonder the 14-year-old daughter in your family is not saying anything because they're scared. You yeah. just you've said they're not going to say anything, and no, no. I, I had a guy. It, it might be a podcast of interest to yourself, um, Theban. You might have came across him, James Herrick. I don't know if you've came. Uh, that's maybe. not Herriot. That's Herrick. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I never had him on. Um, <laughs> James, I think 
really delving into depths of my brain here was episode 23 and wow. and he, he writes a wee bit for 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 the farmers weekly and james as he says is a heterosexual white male um yeah. but he wrote a thing on i can't remember what it was titled it wasn't titled inclusion but it was basically it was it was aimed at lgbt lgbtqia plus that's what it was aimed at and the thing was he'd read a thing um in the farmers weekly in pride month so the june and it would have been 2021 i think it would have been where massey yeah. ferguson had released this competition into schools design our tractor yeah mm -hmm. pride month amazing yeah no kids across the country are getting a tractor in their curriculum fantastic agriculture's on the scene perfect yeah yeah Someone wins with a really cool um pink rainbow based Massey Ferguson tractor. Not a Massey fan, but I would have loved it. Um, yeah. And uh, all the comments from predominantly farming people were, "Oh, what a load of fucking shit! All this, bro, whatever." Yeah. And James's comment was, "No wonder we can't create an inclusive atmosphere because you see a whoever you know a fourteen year old lesbian or a um." 16 year old boy who wants to transition to a female you know whatever reading this on facebook instagram thinking i'm not going near that sector yeah absolutely not. and that's that's the scary thing that people don't realize what that tiny stupid comment that meant nothing to them they don't care about the tractor is impacting our sector for the future 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah i i think that that's the thing and like um i, I recently posted on twitter so you know, farm farm vet students. Um, so they 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 did a survey about when they go and see practice. You know, you know what are their experiences when it comes to discrimination. And among vet students, the two biggest forms of discrimination is sexism and racism. Yet eight, ninety percent, eighty percent are women, but it's men sexist to women. And racism second, even though that's only four percent. And the biggest area they get it from is farm. So why have we got a lack of farm vets? Because when they see when they get that, the odd joke when they're lambing or carving or things like that will go they'll be like do you know what i'm not going to work here i'll i'll do my experience i'll go home and i'll become a small animal vet or whatever and and it and it just shows that you know it's those sort of things that we need to just think we're trying to attract trying to we're trying to connect with the public we're trying to show that our sector is is modern it's progressive and things like that yet we still have these sort of comments and attitudes that are that other people can see that are public and um, as an image of a sector, we should really we we should self govern our, and, and tell ourselves, you know, other people within the sector should say we should stamp it out. We shouldn't wait for somebody else to tell us externally. We need to be doing it internally and stamping that out. And it should be happening in the education establishments and in the media and things like that. And we should normalize that it's OK to call things out and to stand up for these things, because as values based, our sector should stand up for these values. But if we let things slide. How does that look? How does that look to the public, to people wanting to come to join our sector? Um, it's it's not good. And and that's what it's all about. It's about and it's about and, and the other thing I really I'm working on at the moment. So we're talking about diversity and inclusion and actually a really great project that I can quickly share is um, at Nuffield. We've, we, we, we sat together, we created a, a public outreach group um, and we we're looking about how could we connect consumers and farmers together and how can we do that better? And I've always had this idea and I propose this idea of why do we create a diversity and inclusion course that's for farmers and for the agricultural sector. And it will be a bespoke course that's open to the sector. So 
any farm or anyone working in agriculture can do this because again it's about education what's diversity inclusion what do we talk about what's inclusive language what are microaggressions what is racism and homophobia all those things that farmers might go i, I don't know what it is but i want to find out about it or am i saying what am i saying is wrong or is it right or i don't know where to go we wanted to create that so actually we've it's a bit of uh, breaking stuff now we we have got the funding to create the course it's going to be hosted on nuffield um on the nuffield website and any farmer can do the course and it's a small fee and the fee will go to a charity that's helping to bring children into our sector and then when the farmers have done it they can get certificates say they've done this diversity and inclusion course um, and they also can be put if they want to on a green flag farm list and we can promote these green flag farms to show that there are forward thinking farmers out there that are safer for people who want to go into experience, who you know, so vet students or agricultural students or apprentices or if charities are taking people onto farms, these farmers can show that they are a green flag farm. Um, and what we want to do is promote that education and understanding about diversity and inclusion. And it's really going to be a seed that we can add more courses and more information on going later and resources that farmers can find out but it's going to be bespoke for agriculture so it's being designed purely for our sector and um and hopefully you know and we should be starting the creation of the course by the end of this month and it should be launched we're hoping may um, and it'll be a sector-wide thing and it'll be the first time in this sector mm -hmm. we have this course available and we'd encourage students to do it we'd encourage boards and trustees to do it and and hopefully uh, we can grow it and um what I'm really interested in doing is getting all the farm vets in my groups. There's 500 farm vets in IVC to all do this course because we want to show that as farm vets, we're part of the agricultural sector, increasing diversity, inclusion and understanding. So hopefully that's going to be something that's going to help help our sector going forward. I am um, just thinking as you say that I'd quite like to make that a thing for our students coming through to do, you know, you join yeah. the HNC or the NC. We do. We already do a first aid course. We do a couple things like that. Why don't we add that in as a? That would be brilliant. You know, I'd 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 love to. Um, I'm already talking to people like Harper and RAU and uh, try and get Plumpton and all these other colleges. But yeah, the more agricultural colleges that normalise it. So, for example, I wrote a course for Nottingham Vet School on race in the veterinary profession. It's a three module course. Every single person in the veterinary department, veterinary school, does this course. So all new students, when they start veterinary medicine, they do this course, all new lecturers, all new researchers. And now it's been integrated into the curriculum of Nottingham Vet School, race in the veterinary profession. So it's about, you know, so again, it can be done. Um, I created a, a, a course for the British Vet Cattle Veterinary Association. So all new trustees and all trustees have to do it. So, again, if we can normalise this education and, and integrate it and embed it, then that really helps start a the conversation, but b the education and just the understanding of, you know, the, the the things that some of us might take for granted. Oh, don't you know this word? Don't you know that? Just making sure that everyone does have an opportunity to learn. No, I'd I'd love to. I think if you're getting other unis involved, get in touch with yeah. me. Hundred percent. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. And and the great thing about the course is we've also got the affinity groups involved. So women in dairy, agrispect inclusive farms which is like Mike Duxbury and um disability I've also got the British Veterinary Chronic Illness Society the British LGBT plus society and so all these different organizations are going to be making sure that the course is fit for purpose and they're affiliated with it so again it's about bringing our sector together and normalizing difference that's brilliant I love it actually I absolutely love it and <laughs> um, yeah if I can be of any assistance please please say that'd be brilliant um, 
on the Nuffield thing, uh, side of things, you mentioned Nuffield earlier on. Yeah. Um, you, you touched on what it was, well, you said what it was, but um, tell us about your Nuffield experience. Yeah, so so my Nuffield was, ba- uh, I was encouraging and supporting black and people of colour in agriculture. So that was my title. Um, and it was all about looking at how could we, and when I meant agriculture, I mean farming, veterinary and agriculture as a whole sector, because I think actually, you know, the problems are the same. And yeah. and and so what I wanted to do, so my original study was to go to the Australia, go to New Zealand and go to the US. Um, but because of COVID and all these issues, I decided to focus on the US. And actually, the US is such a big country that I, I, I could have spent more time there. Um, so my aim was, what, could, what are we doing in the UK already? Um, so I looked at different universities. I looked at the Land Workers Alliance and other projects that are going on. There's... Um, um, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, land in our names that's another organization within the uk and then what i did is i went to the us and i started my first part of my trip i did it in two bits the first part of my trip was alabama mississippi louisiana and georgia and because they as states have the highest percentage of minority farmers in the us so if an average uh, in the us the average is one percent of farmers in the us are black or people of color in these states it's between three to six percent of farmers um, and so I went to these states. I learned. I went to farmers. I looked at the military, sport, baseball, um, segregation. I learned about that. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King. I followed his journey as well. So he was born in Georgia, and he did a lot of work in Alberta, um, Alabama, and Mississippi. So I followed his journey and looked at um, looked at all that sort of thing. I then went, came back to UK, then went back to Texas. And Texas has the highest number of farmers in the US, but it has the highest number of black farmers as well in the US. So. Okay. I went and looked, talked to black farmers, black growers. Uh, I looked. I, I went to some ranchers, cowboys. Again, there's some um, a lot of Hispanic farmers over there as well. So I, I learned about them as well. I learned about some of the programs. I went to some school, um, some colleges. Uh, for example, Tuskegee University in Alabama is a vet university. Eighty percent of all black veterinarians in the whole of the U.S. study in that one university. Why is that? Exactly. So, it's a, so in the US, they have something called the HBCU. So historically black and uh, historically black um, university and colleges, HBUCs. Okay. Um, and, 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 and this one is one. But what they've done is not only do they have role models, teachers who represent the students, but also they celebrate black entrepreneurs and people who innovated in agriculture and in science and all sorts so a lot of students find that safety about going there knowing that they're going to go into an environment that represents them they're going to peers like them and when these people go mm. out to the workplace they go to california or they go to new york or wherever they go and work and they meet other black children who want to become vets they're obviously going to talk great things about where they studied yeah. and how they studied so these people want to go back to there so a lot of these people will come there study and go back so it was quite interesting actually and, and a lot of the farmers around there are black farmers so again when the students go out and see farming practice they're seeing farmers that represent them as well so again it's that it's like reinforcement positive reinforcement that they can belong and that they can be this and you know they've got those peers and things like that so so it was quite interesting and um so there's loads of different things like that and you know um so so and, and, and there's things that we're doing in the uk that are good there are things in the uk that we're not doing and 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 so my 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 study was all about well okay this is where we're at these are some of the great things that have worked in the us these are some of the things that haven't worked in the us this is how we need to go do go going forward um so my report is very it's very top line 
but I try and break down some of the main easy actions that organizations can take on to help improve diversity inclusion. Um, and, and it's focusing on black and people of color, but actually it'll, if you change black and people of color to any other marginalized group, a lot of it can be equally applicable. Sounds like a brilliant experience. So did you end up only doing the US, nowhere else? Oh, UK, I assume, but, you know. Yeah, so I only did the US and UK. Um, and, you know, I spent I spent, yeah, I spent half my time in the Texas and half my time in those states. Um, and, you know, I'd love to do, and I have done bits and pieces in South Africa and teaching and things like that. So maybe in the future, I'd love to do more. Um, but I think, um, I think when it comes to, the, the, the thing about the UK is there's a lot of shared history with the US yeah. um, when it comes to the empire, colonialism, it comes to agricultural practice. So again, Northern, the Northern Industrial Revolution only happened because of cotton, slave-grown cotton from Mississippi. So the links of our country and that country is massive, and especially the links about um, slavery, colonisation and all those things. And therefore, a lot of the barriers are very similar as well. Um, yes, there might be slight differences. Some of the extreme ways of segregation in the US didn't happen in the UK, but uh, some of the... Um, messaging and some of the repercussions did happen in the UK so I think that's why the US was quite a good model to copy uh, and to learn from. You know one of my favourite films ever and I don't mean favourite because it's a nice story it's just a really good story is Mississippi Burning mm -hmm. um, and it's all about this not in farming. Yeah, yeah no not farming no no. But, but, uh, yeah it's yeah. it's <clears throat> it's a phenomenal study it just every time I speak about something like this on the podcast, and you'll feel this emotion much stronger than I do, I hate that it has to be a study. Yeah. Does that I, make I, sense? I'd love we don't have to talk about this. We don't yeah. have to talk about this. That'd be the that would be the the pinnacle of when we just think, yeah, this is not a topic. We talk about something different. But unfortunately, we live in in a world and in a society where there are still huge barriers. And you know, when people say, you know, I don't see colour. What they're saying is they don't see the barriers that people of colour have to go through and it minimises that. And um, I had that had that comment to me recently by someone who was saying how diverse their community was that they don't see colour. And I just said, well, for the people that do suffer those barriers, colour is a reason why they suffer those barriers. So we need to see colour to understand their barriers. And when we get to a situation where those barriers are removed, then we don't need to see colour. But at the moment, we do need to see colour. And, and it's, it's just one of those things that, you know, like 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 you said, for me, you know, it's like research. Why do we need to keep doing surveys and research? We need we need to be at a point where we need to stop that and just do action. And we need to get to a point where the action is so much that actually we don't need to be doing the action because it's natural now. It's embedded. Um, but we're not at that point now. We're at the point where I think we're at the point of awareness education. So the awareness, there's a problem and a lot of people don't even see a problem. So we need to show them that there's a problem and, and, and make them aware there's a problem and also educate people on what it's all about. You know, what what is race and ethnicity? What are barriers? What is homophobia? Or You know, we need to educate that. We need to show people that and then actions will happen. But I think we're the actions are quite small and quite sporadic at the moment in our sector. At the moment we're on, well, you know, Here's an example of where how barriers look like. Here's an example of why why you know go to a conference. How much diversity do you see in the conference? Look at panels. You know, 
are women represented equally? Are there people with disabilities on there? People of colour on there? No. So look, there's awareness we've got a problem. Now educate yourself on why there's a problem with those people not being there. And and I think we're on that we're on that part of the journey because it is a journey, and the end point is going to take a while. Um, and 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 even like I'm I wouldn't say that I've I'm completely woke and I'm 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 hundred percent know everything about diversity inclusion. I'm still learning. I'm still making mistakes. I'm still trying to educate myself. But everyone's on the journey. Everyone's on a different part of that journey. But we're all on the journey, and I think it's important that we all keep on going and and push ourselves because it's for the greater good, as well as indiv- uh, individual good. It's got to be. It's just got to be for the greater good. But I, I mean, like you, you take us to sitting in this call, yeah. Apart from the fact I've maybe got a slightly bigger beard and a bit more hair in the top, like, what, what, in what world are we different? The I know. Thing, I know. Only yeah. thing that I guess if you put us two together is you had an urban upbringing and I had a rural upbringing. Yeah. And what that gives is, I, 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 I especially after I travelled to Africa, I, I realised how much Tanzania and Rwanda, how much cultural diversity changes you as a person. You know, yeah. like. The, the only difference I see is that the cultural diversity of different upbringings and the benefits that brings to you as a person 100%. is phenomenal. 100%. Phenomenal. I know, um, I know. More than any degree, more than um, as someone with two degrees and someone that teaches them, it is phenomenal what it does. Uh, it's not a biological thing. The, the, the biggest thing is the difference is not biological. The difference, <laughs> you know... The, the positive difference are cultural diversity and diversity of experience and things like that. There's no difference between me and you biologically. We're the same. But if you, and, and, and again, this is a whole different conversation. I can go to how race was invented and how it was invented, but that's how early scientists tried to differentiate people and created that system where some people were at the top and some people at the bottom. And they tried to justify it with a biological reasoning and, and that has now perpetuated so much that subconsciously we think there are biological differences, which then changes every, which then changes everything else being negative. But there isn't any biological difference. Actually, the positives are the cultural differences that brings us together, that makes us stronger. And again, your rural upbringing and my urban upbringing, yes, we've had slightly different experiences, but together we could probably make a more wholesome picture than if we were both one or the other. And that's yeah, a positive sure. thing. Yeah, that's a positive thing. Yeah, but why, why, in science, was there a desire to make a biological difference? Okay, <laughs> so I'll, I'll explain to you quickly then. Um, so, um, when the British had slaves, taking slaves, the British were so the British were the biggest slave uh, dealers in in the Atlantic, um, and then so they, they were dealing with slaves. Um, and they dealt with African slaves because before they used to have white slaves, Irish normally before. Um, and then when they started bringing African slaves, they were scared that the white Irish slaves and the black African slaves would work together to create mutiny and cause disruption. And and so what they felt was actually they need to make a difference, you know. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why they said they, they tried to say, well, why are black people inferior and white people superior and how can we do that and also they had to sell the message of why slavery was okay to the british and in 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 the uk because again people sitting here were like why are you making black people work on the tobacco fields and on the so 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 as a 
as a slave owner, as an industry, how do we, how do I justify it to you that it's okay to treat black people like that, but we won't make white people slaves or anybody else like slavery? So what you then got was scientists who tried to justify that black people were inferior because there were other things that black people possessed that made them lesser people. So it could be their character. You know, black people inherit this character, inherit these behaviours, inherit, inherit smaller brains, inherit, you know, more physical attributes and not very good, you know, whereas white people have got a much better, calmer behaviour, much more amenable, brains are bigger, such like. And and then, and so scientists actually did this. And for example, um, Carl Linnaeus, who's really famous for... Um, for giving Latin names to all the plants and to all the and to the animals, and he's really famous for that. He also speciated humans, and he created white um, Native Americans, Asians, and Black people in a chart. And he had characteristics about people, and he said this is science. And he sent he sold it to the UK, and he sold it to everyone, and saying therefore it's okay to enslave Black people and to treat them as lesser people. And then, and it's and it's a marketing ploy. And, you know, you can think about how great Coca-Cola is at marketing to be the, the most, the tastiest drink. So when you're hot, you really feel like a Coca-Cola because somehow you believe Coca-Cola is a thirst, you quench your thirst. Or how McDonald's is a tastiest, we'll bring McDonald's again, tastiest food. Or, you know, how how a Ferrari, owning a Ferrari means that you've made it in life. It's all marketing. Race is a marketing tool. So the, the, the race was a, the, the biggest marketing tool ever. And do you know how successful it is that even two, three hundred years later, those beliefs still keep a difference in society? Amazon has nothing on, on race theory. Um, you know, Nike or anybody has nothing because 300 years time, no one's going to care who Amazon were or, or Nike. or anything. But race is still there because the way that the people who marketed it and who sold it and how it is embedded in society is still existent to this very day. But it was all about how to justify how Britain treated, first it was slavery, but then how can Britain treat Indians the way they did? You know, the Bengal famine and all these things. How how does Britain, if Asians were lesser than white people, then it's okay to do that. You know, you, you could treat, you could, you know, treat animals badly because animals aren't as good as humans. I'm just saying back in the day, you know, uh, we can test on animals because animals, you know, if, if they die, okay, we've lost a few rats, we've lost a few mice, but we don't want to be testing on humans straight away because we want to make sure it's first safe in monkeys or in rats and mice because they're lesser. Same with same with humans. You know, first of all, you know, we can have an empire in India, we can have empire in Africa, we can enslave Africans, we can have indentured slave um, servants from Asia going into Africa and whatever because they're lesser humans. And that's and that difference is how it's how it's set up. It was enforced by science which we know is not science anymore. And it was then embedded into society and into education. Um, and if you look at some old books and science books, it's the same thing. Um, and, um, and and that's why it's really, and because it's so well entrenched, it's going to take a long time to try and change our thinking of these things. And, 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 and it's unfortunate that, you know, then people like Nigel Farage and people like that play on these um, stereotypes, you know, stereotypes, all these things are based on the same sort of thing, that negative stereotypes and perceptions is then what feeds prejudices and discrimination and what, you know, these, some of these parties play, play on uh, or, or, or general society does.
it's <laughs> it's mad. <laughs> it's, I, I literally don't have anything. I, I I can't put into words the the sort of how that can still be the case. I mean, I got a comment on. I can't remember if we followed each other at this point, but when I was in Tanzania, we went to an orphanage. Um, and it was a it was an orphanage stroke school. So mm -hmm. they offered the ability to, um, to what's the word? Adopt these kids. Uh, they offered the the sort of the kids school board all that stuff. Um, and it was the most, I don't know, it was the most conflicting emotional experience I've ever had. In one part, I'm in the happiest I've ever been with five or six of the most adorable three to six-year-olds just bouncing over you, having fun. I gave them my £1,200 phone and didn't care if it broke at the time. I just didn't. They were having so much fun. Yeah. Um, I was dancing with them. I was whatever. And then at the same time, I was absolutely dying inside at the thought that they don't have parents. They don't know so much, but yet they're so happy. And all this was happening. And I'd filmed this video of me with, I was dancing with some of them and it was just amazing. And it went it went kind of far in fairness. It went to about, I don't know, 15, 16,000 folk. And one comment on it from a completely account that you couldn't tell who it was, as always is the case, was, and I'm going to say this and people might think that's nice, but that's what to me was insane. They said, you're so open to speak and have good experiences with other people. And I'm like, you mean people? You mean other people? What's that mean? Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I'm just, <laughs> this could be in Manchester. This could be yeah. wherever. Where I am is where I am. And we are all people. These are just younger ones than me. Like, yeah. I, I read that comment and thought, oh, that's, no, it's not. <laughs> like, no, no, no. It's that other word in there. Yeah. That then, and, and that's the thing. It's like, they call it unconscious, but it's almost like, it separates people that other them them and us you know and and it's that sort of language that is is difficult but i hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the r2 cast with another really interesting guest i would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today the scottish farmer and i would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry it happens so commonly and it's something that we need to rule up, try and change, you know, um, in a way, which is, which is keeps division, holds division. Yeah, it does. And I mean, I'm sure you'll know him. He's a great guy, Flav Obiero, the guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy who started this podcast, actually, funnily enough. Oh, really? I, yeah, yeah, generally. I heard him on the Farmers Weekly podcast when I was cutting grass. I am not a podcast listener. Um, I had about four weeks cutting grass and I found the Farmers Weekly podcast few stats about some figures in farming and whatnot and normally a couple of guests on Flav was on talking about casual racism and I'm like this guy is interesting and I just gave yeah. I just gave him a call we're on the phone for two hours and I wrote a story about him it was the first time I ever did it brilliant, brilliant. So, brilliant. Um, oh I love it but he uses that term casual racism doesn't he and it's like or you know I'm sure that extends yeah, yeah. sorry to steal your term Flavian but I'm sure that extends to casual discrimination and it's the whole the whole idea that just because you're not saying in your head, what's an overtly racist thing? Doesn't yeah, yeah, not yeah. So, so the word casual or micro really minimizes sure. what it really is because at the end of the yeah. day, it's just racism. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. There's no lesser or more racism. It's racism. Mm. Okay, it might be more shocking, but the impact is still going to be the same. 
and um and that's what people don't understand it's like um you know like for example like like people anglicizing my name or not even attempting to try and say my name do you know what i mean and for people some people are like oh you know i didn't want to get it wrong but actually ask me you know and and, and if people like don't do that that is microaggressions but actually that's just racism do you know what yeah, i mean yeah and, and 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 it's things like that that whereas and, and then using the n-word or the p-word people might think oh I don't, if i don't do that well as an individual i i i count both just the same because you know both are offensive to me yeah. you know um so it's it's I, I think that's the thing i think that's the thing we need to change the language of how we we we've just say it as it is it's like it's wrong whatever it is and we just need to pull it out um but and, and flavian you know he's a good guy because he, he 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 speaks his mind speaks out and and it's not easy because you know end of the day we are me and flav are both a minority and we've got a lot to lose people can just shut the door at us if we people go well they are disruptors they are loud about it they they go on about it blah blah maybe it's easier rather than having to put up with it we can just ignore them or put them down and that's the easy way out but um but we're both in the, we're both in that situation where you know it's important we keep on going it's important we call things out we speak up and actually we found more people that are with us than are with against us um which has been really brilliant you know it says allies and allies is what can make a big difference and 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 as ally you don't have to know what to do straight away but it's about learning and being supportive and there and then using your platform and your privileges to support people that don't have that and i think allyship is more important than the people themselves who are trying to call it out i completely agree with that I, yeah and i've said this a few times and I, i've i've heard folks say things like and I'm not going to say an exact term here, but something along the lines of, in this case, Steve, you promoting this. Yeah? Like, yeah. They're like, oh, but... And the, t the term I will say that I've heard of many a time is, they will do that. You know, or, or yeah, that yeah, makes yeah. sense. It, it's for them. Which, again, is that word you're talking about. Um, but this is why I openly do this. Or I bring you on the show it's not the only reason you've also got an extremely interesting uh, story but you know and why i why i talk about this in class why i talk about this to my mom and my dad and whoever because yeah it's it's not just enough everyone has to do this and it yeah and i hate that we have to i hate that anyone has to but we do and yeah it's do you know a simple thing i did the other day so my children are going to school uh whatever and they come home and they read a book read a book read a book and I realised that not one book was written by a person of colour in all the years they'd been at school. So what I did is I bought 15 books written by people of colour and donated it to their school to put on their shelves, to give the children an opportunity to read a story from somebody else. And it's those little things that we can do as allies to help the next generation. Uh, yeah. And, it, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it, I didn't have to say anything to them. I didn't have to call anything out. Um, and 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 the other reason why I did that was my my wife was on a on a WhatsApp group, and um, they were talking about something that went wrong. And my wife raised that her son, like my son, had gone had had a racist comment said to him by another child, and no one said anything. Everyone was quiet and completely ignored it. And my wife was quite upset about it. And I said, okay, what should we do about it? And we thought about it. And I thought, let's let's just start to provide 
books and stories and things like that and let's educate the children because those parents if they think that then that's fine but we'll we'll make sure the children can bring up can just become a bit more diverse in what they see and and read um and, and it's something as simple as that it's quite simple that anyone can do yeah you've got the ability to change the opinion for 70 years in a kid but it's a lot less than an adult i guess if you want to look at it in a mm-hmm. positive mm-hmm. manner but what you mentioned about anglicizing your name why do you go by Thebe and not Navratnam? If I say um, well, yeah. So this is it because I, when I grew up in, when I was a child, I, I was the only person of color in every school I went to. You know, Edinburgh and Dundee and Yorkshire, and I was always <laughs> the only one like me, only one like me. Um, so it was just easier for people to say my name, and people start used to try and call me Steve, and um, and I didn't like that. And I didn't want that. But then people wouldn't bother trying to say my full name, Partheban. So I just said, okay, call me Thebe. And it just stuck. And I, I have some places I do say, like, I will say, use my full name, Partheban, you know, some meetings or some conferences and things like that. Um, but then if I know somebody or, you know, people are respect, you know, in a way respectful and things like that, then I don't mind people using Thebe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things. But, you know, I have had people call me Steve and and not be apologetic about it. And that I really take offense to. Um yes. but Steve, I just think hey, if people are showing respect and it, it's helping the conversation, I don't mind. Uh, but if it's something formal, then I use it for my full name. Well, first off, I apologize because I must have I don't know. I must have yeah. been saying your surname. Yeah. Yeah, but this is this is informal, so I don't mind. Like, yeah. you know, and you said my full name at the beginning, so I'll give yeah. you a lot of uh, cred for that. But did did I say did I say your surname first? Because no, no, no. So in my so it's, a, it's an interesting cultural thing. I'll no, it is because I'm aware of this in different cultures. I just didn't realize it was the case. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my my <clears throat> father's name is Navaratnam. Okay. And my name's Partheban. Okay. So, but when you get married, it swaps around. So my given name becomes my surname. So Partheban's my given good. name, and what? Navaratnam is my dad's name. Oh, I see. And and what culture is that? Because I generally don't even know. It's uh, Tamil, Tamil Hindu. Ah, okay. That's Tamil so Hindu. So therefore, therefore Navratnam. My mum is Mrs. Navratnam, and uh-huh. my, we were all Navratnams. But my family are all Parthebans now. So therefore, my dad's family is Navratnams, and now my family's Parthebans. And then when my son gets married, he'll have his own family. So the families are. There isn't a common name that goes to all families. That's really interesting. And does that mean it goes Navratnam, Partheban, Navrat... No, it doesn't mean that. So, 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 kids... so when, I was, when I was born, I was Partheban, Navratnam. And when I got married, uh-huh. I was Navratnam, Partheban. Yes. And so my wife is now Dr. Partheban. Yes. And my children are all surnamed Partheban. But when they get married, if they choose to, again, sure. people could choose. But if my son got married, then his first name would become his surname and his first name would become Partheban. That's really nice. I genuinely like that. So therefore, I... my wife, like me and my wife are a unit together and my dad and my his wife, my mum are t- a unit together like that. That's all. So you form smaller family units. Huh. That's really cool. Well, there you are. Apologies for getting the name wrong, but I've learned something. No, no, no you did it. You did it. That's yeah. fine. So it's more confusing for people who knew me before I got married and then after I got married. I mean... For sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. But like, see that? I think we've probably created an example. What we've just done there, like I, I, I shared, I shared my master's year with with um. There was twenty three of us, seventeen of which were from China, and they oh, all right. called me curry, yeah, right? yeah. And we had a laugh about this yeah. because 
they didn't know that. And I was calling them their surname as well. We had a yeah. chat. We worked it out. It was fine. Yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. Start yeah. calling them Gregor. You know, yeah. like, and actually, that was one thing I always felt quite bad for. That an example would be um, Ling Yuan, who had changed her name to CL because that made more sense for us over here and what we're used to is we try and find something easy. Or Han changed to Jessica. And I'm like, guys, like, what's your name? I want to call you by your name. And they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. One, no one says that. And that blows my mind. No. Um, so, yeah, we just created an example there that <laughs> just because you get it wrong doesn't mean it's an issue. Just see what no, no, happens. no, exactly. Yeah, and, no. and that's it. It's about chatting through it and learning yeah. from it. Because I make mistakes as well. And the, the worst thing is to get defensive and, and, and walk away. Best thing is to chat it through and admit, okay, I want to learn and get yeah. better next time. And, and that, that's brilliant. That's the way to do it. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Here, man, I'm pretty sure over the next few years at Nuffield conferences, we'll be having chats for, for longer than before. I'd actually planned on joining your table on the first night, but I had just been through the Nuffield sort of intro, and I'm sure you've yes. been there. It's an yes, intense yes, day. Yes. And Get through head... the first couple of years, being a new scholar <laughs> and all that, and then once you're an oldie, you can then join us. <laughs> Wait, my head was pounding, like, it was pounding. <laughs> It was, I was just, I said to Yaz, I was like, can we please just go back to bed? <laughs> was, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I know I'm normally mean. a bit more social, but uh, yeah. And... No, no, I was, I think I was the same. And I think my first one, I was presenting on the second day as well. So I was very like, I just need to listen. I need to keep myself, you know, on, on track. Um, went to bed early and yeah, so I couldn't enjoy myself. So this is the first one actually I enjoyed myself because I could just sit back and listen to everyone else. Yeah, yeah, not a, not a three in the morning, Joe. I know. I know. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. No, here it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, man. I really do appreciate it. It's been great fun, and I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot, and probably got a bit angry at times. Absolutely not at yourself, just at the battle you're fighting. And uh, yeah, appreciate your time hugely. I know you're a busy man, but before you go, there is two questions we ask everyone. Okay. Um, uh, I hate one of the questions and the answer for you will be quite tricky because you're someone that just fits so much in. So the first question is, where do you see yourself in five years? And the second question is, if you had any advice or tips, whatever, for people coming into agriculture stroke veterinary, what would they be? Okay, so uh, five years time. Um, I hope I'm doing a lot less. And <laughs> I've got a lot of other people who are who are out there uh, flying the flag. Um, and I hope that I'm I'm there as a supporter rather than as a as an out there doing things. Um, I hope in five years' time that um I'm 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 in a position where I can help an organization make real change. So I I'm hoping that I can find a, a position somewhere that is close to my heart that is making a big change. So I'm looking for that position. But like not a full-time job position, but as a volunteer volunteer. Um, but working for an organisation, just supporting them. So that, that's my long-term goal um, in the next five years. And, and there are a couple, you know, I have a lot, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an ambassador for the um, Country Trust, who I really believe in. They take children from marginalised backgrounds, um, so normally on free school meals onto farms. And another charity that I'm really passionate, that I'm really growing fond of, is Farms for City Children. Um, and again, they've got three farms in the UK, and they're doing great things by taking marginalised children onto farms. So um, I'm, I hope that I can support them more um, and, and be more proactive with them. Um, and people coming into the sector, veterinary, agriculture, farming, what I'd say is um, find your 
find your role. The, the sectors are so big. There's so much you can do within it. Don't be, don't think that all you see is all you can do. There are so many avenues in the sector, so many opportunities in the sector. It doesn't always come get right first time. I, you know, it took me a while to understand really where I wanted to be as a vet. Um, so find your feet, reach out to people, um, reach out to myself or yourself or anybody else, get advice. And um, there is a place for everyone. Um, so don't don't feel don't feel scared. Reach out uh, and you will find that place. Yeah. And realize that there is people like us and not just the ones that say those comments that we we're talking about. earlier. Exactly. Don't. Yeah. Th th they're not representative of the sector. Jeremy Clarkson is not representative of the sector. There are <laughs> good people in the sector. And uh just, just, just search, reach out to them, and we're always happy to help you. Um, but there is a place for everyone, and um, and it does take a while, but yeah. And and I and I'm hoping that the sector does change going forward. You know, the more people that get on board, that value people, because our sector, it doesn't matter how much technology we throw, how much marketing and branding, people is key. And if we can embrace and celebrate and support people of every background and any any background then I think we can really make this sector something to be proud of. And that's future-proofed. I mean, I've always been a bit of a, an arguer of the basis that I think every business, every every um, industry, even if it's technology as the industry, that people are what make it happen. Because like, even if you've got autonomous AI, uh, autonomous intelligence, let's not even talk about artificial intelligence, you still need people. <laughs> We're the ones that matter. Like, you can't have a chat with a robot. You can, but it's a bit weird. Um, you know, it's always going to be the case, and yeah, it's more powerful being able to speak to anyone than anything. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. So 100%, no, hundred yeah. percent. So I just say, no, sorry, and, and we've got. We're so lucky. We're in a country that has got so many people of so much diversity. We don't even have to go outside these shores. Um. So yeah, use them make use of them embrace them and uh get to know them that's that's the most important thing no 100 mate 100 couldn't agree more as I said it's been an absolute pleasure having you on i hope you've enjoyed it yourself uh, i have and I, I thank you for thank you for having me and I, I really enjoyed our chat and it's great great chatting to you and great to get to know you going forward and um yeah i appreciate it um so uh, do you know what having chats like this gives me a lot of hope and faith in everything going forward so thank you no, well, I I feel the same. You know, it gives me a lot of hope in a, in a lot of things. So no, um, it's it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And uh, I'm sure everyone's enjoyed it. And I'm sure it's one of those episodes that will have a lot of folk listening. <laughs> um, and for those of you listening, that has been the gentleman that is Parthiban Navratnam. I said it the wrong way around. I apologise. <laughs> on the podcast it today. Was that way on one day? Yeah, no, I know. Exactly. Yeah, let's go with that. I'll pretend I knew you before. Um. A fantastic episode there. As I said, the last one we had uh, was Ricky Forbes, Tornado Hunter, and uh, the next one will be Guion Parry, who is part of my Nuffield cohort. Um, so yeah, hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we shall see you for number 176. See you then. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the R2 cast as much as I have, and I would just like to quickly thank our primary sponsors of the show today, Howden Rural, the new name for A-Plan Rural. If you follow Howden Rural on social media, you'll see the plethora of work that they do to support this sector, and it's been a pleasure to work alongside them so far, and long may it continue. For more information about them, be sure to check out howdeninsurance.co.uk forward slash rural, and I'll see you for the next episode.